If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans. We're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. I was on a sort of a panel of, of pastors a few weeks ago answering some questions about ministry, and one of the questions they asked us at the end of the panel was, you know, what is your favorite thing about ministry right now? And I remember saying, sort of in a surprised way, like I was surprised that this was my answer, it was um, Sunday morning worship, and you go, that's That shouldn't be a surprise answer to you. That should be the obvious answer to you, maybe. But I was saying and sharing with this group that, you know, it's been a crazy couple of years. I don't know if you know, if you've been paying attention, what's been going on. But things have been a little different the last couple of years. And uh, and church has been very different over the last few years. And uh, it sometimes has been very stressful, even, to try to figure out how to make it work and how to make it happen and how to come together and worship together. And in the midst of all of that, it felt like our world was kind of being ripped further and further apart um, at the seams. And so through all of that, um, I remember times coming together in worship actually being kind of like filled with angst or sort of some, some stress about like how to make it happen and how to experience um, God in the way that we had before and realizing through much of it how much I had taken it for granted just coming and gathering and worshiping together. And I would, I would never even, even venture to compare our experience with people in other countries who are persecuted for even gathering together, but it was the first time in my life that I ever even felt a little bit of discomfort gathering together and thought, wow, how grateful I am each and every Sunday morning as things have gotten more and more back to normal to say, like, it's so good to see everyone. It's so good to worship with each other. And I was saying on this panel, I'm kind of surprised. I, I kind of go into Sunday morning sometimes at that same level of stress. Then I come out and I'm so filled with joy and happiness because I'm like, that was great. And as we come together, we come together and we worship. We praise God because he is God. And we come together around the Word because it is what guides us. It is what shapes the way that we live our lives. It is what shapes who we are and who we become and helps us understand in a world like this what is real and what is true versus all of the things that are not. We're going to be in Romans 8, verses 1 through 13 this morning. I think it might say 15 in your bulletin, but it's 1 through 13. And... um, we're gonna, um, I'm going to put this up on the screen as we read through it, and then we'll dive in this morning. Romans 8, 1 through 13, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. It says, there is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the life that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We'll stop right there. 
I want to tell you, I want to share with you for a moment the deeply personal and semi-traumatic um, story of my sister and brother and I getting my mom a smartphone <sighs> because it was not easy and she, she fought to the end. Um, there was a point my sister and brother and I got together and we're like, listen, this just isn't going to work. This whole flip phone thing, it's getting too hard to communicate with her. We're rarely hearing back from her any kind of quickly. We're trying to send her stuff. That's not working or whatever. And we don't want to get blamed for, you know, not communicating. So we got to figure this thing out. And so we would keep, uh, we would extol to her the benefits of getting a smartphone. We would say, uh, we would say, mom, if you just go in and you get one, like you, and she would always say, oh, I don't care about, I don't worry, I don't care about that stuff. I don't want to spend my money on that stuff. It's too complicated. The last thing I'm going to do is carry around something even more complicated. I finally figured this thing out. I'm not going to try another one. I'm sure none of you can relate to this, right? We said, mom, but we can just send you text messages and then you'll get them when we send them to you because you'll see them and maybe hear them and then you can respond then instead of what you're doing now, which is kind of getting them all at the end of your day and then them being lost in a folder somewhere because you have like windows on your phone for some reason. <laughs> we could FaceTime you, mom. We could FaceTime you. You don't have to use dad's phone to FaceTime us. And dad goes to bed way earlier than mom, so that doesn't really work out super well at bedtime for the kids. So we could FaceTime you. You can get a little thing that says FaceTime from the, the, from the family, and you can just pop it open. And there we are through the magic of technology, right, mom? Just get a smartphone. It'll be great. You'll love it. It'll be good. Mom, you can get email on this thing. You can even get your email on this thing, my mom would say, but it's so complicated, my phone is easier. All these things you're saying to me make it seem even more complicated. Why would I do it? We said, Mom, we can text you photos of our kids. She's like, done. <laughs> At any point in your day, you will get a picture of our kids or a puppy or something, and it will just brighten your whole day. Sold, done, fine. Where do I sign up? How do I do it? So she gets it. And then, you know, there's the navigating it, trying to figure out what to do with this thing. So then I'd be with my mom. I was with my parents a few weeks ago for a couple days. And uh, then comes, you get this great thing. She gets this great, amazing thing that revolutionizes her life, but she only really knows that it does a couple of things. And so then, pretty much from that point on, it seems like almost every question that she has about things in life were like, your phone can do that for you now. She's like, what? It can? It can, Mom. Your phone has a map on it. It has a map on it. This is where the map is. It'll tell you where to go. No more printing out directions or getting lost or things like that. This is incredible. This thing that I got just so I could have pictures of my grandkids, now you're telling me there's a map on it that will tell me how to get places. Mom, you like games? There's games on your phone. Mom, you need an alarm clock? You kind of do. There's an alarm clock on your phone. You can set it whenever you want, wherever you go. Mom, you want to know what the weather's like? Guess what? Your phone will tell you whenever you're wondering, while you're getting dressed, getting ready for the day, you can look at your phone. It'll tell you what the weather's like. Mom, Facebook has so many cat videos. I can't even describe how many cat videos Facebook has. They're still on there, even the old ones. And you can look at them on your phone instead of having to look at them at work when you're at your computer. And you should be doing other stuff. Mom, you can take a picture of your checks. You can deposit them. You can do that with your phone. You need a calendar? Mom, good news. There's a calendar on your phone. Mom, check this out right here on the home screen. Mom, there's a calculator on your phone. Mom, you're never going to need a flashlight again. There's a flashlight on your phone. You know the last thing I use my phone for is a phone. I use it as a flashlight most of the time. I never realized how much I needed one until I had one on my phone and it was that easy to get to. There are so many amazing things that we're showing her and telling her about it. She's like, but it does this? It does this? Yes, it, it will do pretty much like if you have to think. People get angry when their phone doesn't do a thing that they need done. And then all of a sudden an update comes or something happens and someone figured out a way to make money giving you a way for your phone to do that thing. There's something about getting something. Uh, knowing it's good, knowing that you want it, knowing that it gives you something good, and then finding out again and again and again that there are these benefits to that thing that you didn't even totally anticipate. And you're like, wait, really? 
That too, that too, that too. It does this, it does this. This is the point that we're at in Romans. We're at this point in Romans where it can start to seem a little bit repetitive because what Paul's doing is he's saying, and here is another thing about the gospel, and here is another thing that life in Christ brings to you, and here's another benefit and another blessing and another glorious truth that comes from faith in Christ and walking in him. And Paul here is extolling the benefits of something specific and something powerful, which is the Spirit. This is considered by many theologians to be one of the greatest passages um, in all of the New Testament and all arguably of Scripture because of what Paul addresses here in what it means to have a life that is in the Spirit versus a life that is in the flesh. And as Paul talks about this, he is sharing with the church in Rome the exciting news that this thing which is following Christ, trusting in Him, which they generally have already chosen to do, He's talking to them about something they've chosen to do already. He's not having to sell them more on it so they make that choice, but he's instead reminding them there are tremendous benefits that you probably didn't even realize when you first began following and trusting in Christ. But the thing about these kinds of benefits is that you can actually be ignorant to them. You can be unaware of them and miss them because that's how it works. If you're not aware that something has been given to you, if you're not aware that there's a benefit, if my mom isn't aware that her phone does a certain thing without us helping her to realize that, then she doesn't experience the benefit of that thing. Have you ever known a Christian who was miserable? Have you ever known a Christian who doesn't have a lot of hope? Have you ever known a Christian who isn't particularly characterized by joy? If so, then you have seen evidence to the fact that you can be given something through the gospel and still not enjoy the benefits of that thing, either because you aren't aware that it's available to you or you aren't living in light of it. What Paul is saying to the church here in Romans 8 and we're going to see in the next few weeks, but especially in this passage, is what the benefits are of the Spirit itself. He starts off saying this, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first benefit that Paul tells the church is simple. If you are in Christ through the power of the Spirit, there is no condemnation for you anymore. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's explaining the process of how Jesus made it possible so that you are a person, if you're in Christ, who are no longer condemned. You are no longer under any sort of condemnation. The first benefit really has to do with our eternal security and the assurance that we have in Christ, knowing that if our faith is in him, that we have actually experienced liberation from condemnation itself. It is one thing to be told by a person that you're not any longer condemned. To be condemned to something, to have something in your past that you've done, and to know that there's a punishment, that there's something that you must experience condemnation. You feel it, and you've been sentenced it, and you're dealing with it. For a person to tell you good news, you're forgiven, you no longer have to carry the weight of that thing around. It is another thing entirely for a person to say, condemnation isn't a reality for you anymore, period. It is one thing for me to tell one of my children when they do something wrong, it's okay, you don't have to go to your room, or it's okay, you can come out of your room. It's another thing to say to them, you'll never have to go to your room again. I mean, what would that be like? What would that do? Having no condemnation, not being condemned, means that sin no longer defeats us and defines us, which is what happens with condemnation. It begins to define who you are. 
You say, God can't possibly mean that, though, right? He isn't actually saying, uh, he's, he's more saying you can come out of your room now, right? He's not saying there's no more going to your room. That, that would be crazy, right? Who would ever obey or do the right thing or be good? Now, you're starting to get a sense of why Paul is talking about the things he's talking about at this point in Romans, because it's the first objection people would have. Wait a second, let me get this straight. You're telling us that I'm not condemned any longer in the future because of what he's done? Then why on earth would I do the right things? And the answer, which is why Paul spells out why we're not condemned, is because you're grateful. Because of the gratefulness that you experience knowing that your freedom from condemnation comes from what Jesus has done. It is the reason, the thing that would motivate you to no longer sin, to no longer do things that are evil, even though you know the condemnation isn't there, is the gratefulness of knowing of what Christ has done for you. The change that happens in us because of what Christ has done changes us in such a way that we go from being somebody who thinks of sin as like breaking the law of the land, right? If I roll a stop sign, if I blow through a stop sign, oh man, I feel bad. I'm not a good citizen, but nobody saw it, so oh well. There's a difference between that and doing something to harm my wife. Because one of those is a relationship and one of those is someone who I love and who I care about. And so what happens when we are free through Christ and we are told you experience no condemnation any longer is our status changes with what sin is and the law is and who God himself is to us in our lives. And the result of it is when we do things that are sinful, we're not just breaking the law of the land. We're actually doing something against someone whom we love. Someone who we have a relationship with. And it is an entirely different thing to know that you're doing something to harm the relationship you have with another person. If you're here this morning and you're, you have not chosen at some point in your life to place your trust in Christ, then what Paul is saying here is that you are under condemnation. You go, well, that's extreme. That is, that is really heavy. Well, track with me here for a second because I think that I can explain why it actually is like a thing that makes perfect sense. Even in the world that we live in, even if you remove some of this stuff from the Bible, from the way we look at things, you'll see that the inevitable result of the way that we live in our lives is condemnation itself. Because the second benefit that Paul tells us about isn't just about the future, the fact that we're free, we're not condemned, we have this assurance, this blessed assurance in Jesus, but he talks then about the benefits that we have here and now. He goes on to tell us that we now can live differently in this life. It's not just about fire insurance or a safety net for the life to come. He goes on, and, he, and he's referring to these people, he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says, now that you're not under condemnation anymore, you're a person who now walks not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit itself. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life, and it is peace. Paul is saying here, now one of the benefits of the spirit of this life in Christ is this. You have two different ways that you can walk through life. Prior to that, you only had one, and it's something that he calls the flesh. So there's two different ways that we can walk through life. There are those who walk according to the flesh, says Paul, and there are those who walk according to the Spirit. When Paul talks about the flesh, we'll talk about that one first. Life in the flesh is this. It is life lived in accordance with the material world around us. Now, the phrase flesh, it is, it is this Greek word sarx. It's used throughout the Bible, it is used throughout the New Testament, and it's used abundantly, and it's used to describe these different types of things. Uh, in some instances, it seems to be describing the, the part of us that is sinful and that does bad things. In other times, it seems to be describing simply what it is to be physical, what it is to be physically in the flesh. But we understand that it makes sense to us that... that the flesh is at the very least talking about the part of us, the nature of us that is 
physical, it's temporary, it's here, it's tangible. We feel it, we see it. And the result of that, according to the Bible, is that any part of us that is physical, any part of us that is living in the flesh, is susceptible to sin because of the fall. We're born of material parents into a material world. We are clothed with material things. We are fed material milk. We are placed in material beds. We sleep, we walk, we live, we talk, and we grow up in a world of physical matter, of material things. Matter presses upon us so greatly. It takes us over so completely. Our thinking, our minds, and it seems even our spirits. We all live in the physical world. We're physical. We're born that way. We're born in the flesh. We're born experiencing these physical things. And when we think of the spiritual stuff, we think spiritual is this other thing. A lot of times spiritual is for people who aren't into the flesh. Maybe they've been burned. Maybe they've had some bad experiences. Or maybe they're you know, wanting to transcend uh, the flesh and experience something better, something different. But that's kind of a few people, and they're kind of spiritual. And you know, uh, most of us are more, you know, uh, what can we can see, what we can feel, what we can taste, what we can touch. We work physical jobs, we play physical sports, we marry physical people, we have physical children, we buy and we build physical homes. We are affected by the physical health of our physical bodies. Life in the flesh is unavoidable. In fact, it seems like asking someone to live any other way would be cruel, would be strange. How on earth would that happen? We are born in the flesh, and in the beginning, it seems like a pretty good idea to live simply through the flesh. And what I mean by that is it seems like a good idea to build a life on the things that we can do, uh, the way that we achieve things, the life that we can build physically here and now, the tangible, the, the, that which rewards us in those ways. So it seems pretty good in the beginning to most of us. Yeah, okay, I can do this. I can do well. I can live my life well. I can build a good life. I can do good things. We think... I can be one of the good ones. Then, over time, we blow it here, we mess up there, we lose an opportunity here. We feel a little bit less excited about the things that we can accomplish, maybe who we're being. Um, a lot of people hit the middle of their life and they go, oh man, like, what am I doing? Who am I becoming? What am I accomplishing? What is this? How do I feel about it? If we blow it enough times which we all do, then comes guilt. We do something wrong, we feel guilty, we feel bad. We go, well, guilt isn't such a bad thing. Guilt's a pretty good motivator. Uh, I can use guilt to get people to do things. Seems to work well. Uh, when I'm honest, um, a lot of the stuff that I do, I do because I just kind of feel bad. Like, I mean, have you ever said the same? Have you ever like, been talking to someone and you actually say the words out loud? I just feel bad. I just feel bad. I just feel bad. And they go, what? like, maybe that's not a great reason to do something, right? But it's so natural to us that we just go, I don't know. That's just the reason why you do it, right? I feel guilty. I feel obligated. I feel like I should. I feel like I need to make up for this thing that I did, this thing that I did wrong. Maybe even if we get really big with it, who I am. But guilt isn't so bad. It can motivate. I can do better next time. I could be better next time. This should be just the push I need. But unless you're looking at Instagram where it seems like everyone's actually getting better and everything's actually going better and people are actually doing the things that guilt is driving them to do, in real life, guilt rarely, if ever, works. So the things begin to pile up. And as we live in the flesh, the things that we don't do, the things that were inadequate, the hurts and the pains and the, the shortcomings, these things pile up. And the guilt piles up and it becomes something even worse than guilt. It becomes shame. And shame is bad. Shame is scary. Shame is like this cloak that you wear on you and you carry around. You actually get used to, to where someone might even need to point out that you have it, that you bear it. Shame is this thing that follows you around. It becomes a part of you. You stop thinking about it. This is what a life in the flesh ultimately is. This is what a life lived in nothing but the flesh ultimately leads to. The result is that we live in a world where 
Granted, few people will agree, will say that they're guilty of things. Uh, we, we live in a world where it's increasingly harder um, to, to say, I'm guilty. In fact, the pressure is, you're not guilty of things. And yet, we live in a world where everyone seems filled with shame, and yet no one's done anything objectively wrong to merit it. So how do we address it? What do we do? You can have a pretty good run in the end, but the result is always the same. When we live in the flesh, when we experience the material, when what it's about in life is what we can do, who we can become, and how we can show that we're doing pretty well. By any standard that we set in the physical flesh, eventually this will always lead us to the same conclusion, condemnation. And I'm not just talking condemnation from God. I'm saying condemnation within ourselves. We feel it. We carry it around. It is a weight. The good news, according to Paul, is that one of the benefits of being a follower of Jesus, of having faith in Christ, is that you don't have to only walk in the flesh. You can choose something different. You can walk in the Spirit, he says. He says a person who's been saved by Christ now has a way of living a reality that you now have your eyes open to that is a completely different thing. And that one, life in the flesh, living in the flesh, walking it out, brings life, brings freedom, while the physical world brings condemnation. We talked about this a little bit last week. When you begin living in Christ, what happens is you, the Spirit begins to give you a genuine, sincere desire to do these things that are good, that are right, that are godly, that are holy, that are true. And Paul talked about it last week, right? We looked at his sort of crazy internal battle going on within him where he's going, I don't... I have the things that I want to do. I genuinely desire to do these things because the Spirit has given me a love for them. And yet, no matter how hard I try, I can't do them. I cannot do the thing I want to do. In fact, it turns out I keep doing the very thing that I hate. Why does he hate it? Why does he want the good thing? Because the Spirit is within him. Because the Spirit is already beginning to be at work within him. And it actually gives us a desire to do the right thing. But the truth is, when we talk about life in the flesh and life in the spirit, this is the hard reality. There are so many more people who would give themselves the title of a Christian than there are people who would actually live their life according to the spirit. It's easy to give ourselves a label. It's easy to attend a service. It's easy even to do some of the physical things, just like the things that people did when Jesus was walking around talking to people. It's easy to do some of those things, um, it seems, and still not be a person filled with the Spirit, which is why uh, we look at this, and it seems like kind of a mysterious way of living, of being. Would I describe myself as someone who is living in the Spirit? I don't know. We either assume that we are, or we often haven't really thought much about it. The truth is that there are vastly more people claiming to be Christians than people who live by the Spirit. We call this living by the Spirit a life of holiness. And holiness is not just good behavior, but transforming our very interior of ourselves, having our minds be renewed and our hearts we treat holiness like camping. We treat it like it's this thing that you do when you really feel like putting extra work in and maybe getting a nice, pleasant experience for a period of time. We treat holiness like a marathon. Like, oh, you ran a marathon? That's cool. Yeah, I don't really have time for that. And it would be a really good thing to do. I'm really, it's awesome that you did it. That's really impressive. That's cool. I can never do something like that. That's how we treat holiness when we talk about it. It's how we even treat life in the spirit when we talk about it. We think, I'm not quite at that level. I've still got enough stuff to worry about. Maybe one day, maybe when I'm old enough, maybe when I've done this long enough. Now, Paul explains here how a person lives one way or the other. You see, the benefit is that we don't have to live according to the flesh, we can live according to the Spirit. But how do you do it? And Paul articulates it. He says, you set 
your mind on one or the other, and your body will follow. Huh, that's weird, because we usually think of it working the opposite, right? In fact, we usually pursue it by the opposite means. We say, well, if I want to be a good spirit person, then I'll do good things. And then eventually I'll probably change somehow. If I want to be a good, uh, or if I want to, uh, you know, I know that's how it works in the world. That's how it works with the flesh. What Paul says is he says, here's the way people work. The way we work is that our minds are set on a thing. And because our minds are set and fixed on that thing, we become who we become because of where our mind is at. One pastor said it this way, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, wherever your mind goes most naturally and freely, when there is nothing else to distract it, that is what you really live for. You think, you ever think about that? Like, like, what do I think about, right? What do I think about when I'm not thinking, okay? Before there were phones, I'm sorry, I did that to my mom. I made it harder for her to think. Before there were phones, when we thought more, there was just quietness, right? What do you find your mind going to when there's nothing else to distract it, right? Is it going to the cares of this life, of this world, the physical things, the responsibilities that you have? Or is it going to the Spirit? Is it going to the things of God? According to Paul, your religion is where your mind goes. Your life is shaped by whatever preoccupies your mind. The overcoming of sin in our lives begins in our minds. And victory with sin is only ever the result of having our minds set on the Spirit. I have a really hard time fixing my mind on things. I have a hard time staying focused on things, fixing my mind on something that it's not automatically on. It seems to be getting more and more difficult in the culture in which we live. There's nothing like talking to my son and trying to have a serious conversation with him and then him asking me a question and I go, I'm not sure you're thinking about what we're talking about right now. I mean, sometimes it's like a Bible question, you know, I'm like, okay, that was good, you know. Hey, Dad, do you think when John's head was delivered on a platter, what do you think the expression was on his face? Right? Amen. You get that question, it doesn't matter what else you're talking about, you're like, I don't think you're with me here, right? It is hard to fix my mind on things. And what Paul says is he says that's the first step. Set your mind on the gift and the mercy and the grace of God. Set your mind on these things as often as you can. In fact, you can't do both. They seem opposed to one another. Because the problem is that if we think of the flesh, and we're in the flesh, and we're living in the physical world, then we will not think of the things of the Spirit. Life in the flesh and the Spirit cannot both happen at once. Each day you live, you are either mortifying one, which is a fancy phrase of saying, killing one for the sake of the other. As I was thinking about this passage this week, as I was writing this sermon this week, I kept feeling this burden that my job is to talk to all of us, to everybody here, about how like bad it will mess up your life if you focus on the flesh, right? If you're a person of the flesh, a person who's focused on these things that are toxic and bad and selfish, this hedonistic way of living your life. If pleasure is all that matters to you, then I'm here to tell you that it will destroy your life. You'll be miserable in the end, and, you'll be, and God will be there at the end going, here I am, what did I tell you? Come on back. Here is the problem. The more and more I thought about that, the more I thought, I don't feel that that is where we are at today, most of us in the church. 
where I think we are at, which is why it is so hard to actually live in the Spirit the way Paul calls us to, is that we are, if anything, comfortable. The church is rarely a place. It should be a place that is a hospital for sinners, a place where people come broken and and needy, and yet oftentimes it is a place of comfortable people living comfortable lives seeking further comfort. And I say that because I look at my own life and I look at myself and I go, you know, man, life is really hard right now. Things are really tough. I'm feeling down. And I go, you know, it must just be, that must just be what it's like when a person loves God this much. That must be what it's like because I know I'm living in the Spirit. I know I'm doing those things. Why am I discouraged? Why am I exhausted? Why am I disheartened? Why don't I feel the way that I think I should feel in Christ? And I think, man, it must just be because this is what it's like to, to, to do things for God, and it's harder and harder and harder. And when I'm honest, I look at myself and I go, do you know what's really causing that in my life? Is my incredible ability to prioritize my own comforts over everything else, and then just kind of be bummed out at how not in the spirit I seem the rest of the time. We will spend our, when Paul talks about flesh, and he uses this word sarks, he is not just talking about the sinful things that we do. He is talking about the physical lives that we live and that we build. Jesus himself came and was made this word, flesh. Is it possible that in the effort that we put to build our good, happy lives, that being comfortable and doing well might actually be the most important thing to us? Is it possible that we're only willing to give up to a certain point because we have to be comfortable in the end? Is it possible we're only willing to love up to a certain point because we have to be comfortable in the end? Is it possible that we're only willing to sacrifice up to a certain point to deny ourselves because we've got to make sure that we're comfortable in the end because the point of life, what I'm trying to accomplish here is I'm just trying to kind of get settled in, nestled in, get it all nice, get everything, get everything nice, get this nice, get that nice, get this thing nice over here, work on this thing, get all these, keep all the plates spinning, everything else, and just be good with things. Amen. Amen. That's what we want. And if that's what we want, then there is no room for life in the Spirit. I was reading an author this last week, A.W. Tozer, and he was, um, I, I got this book. I really liked it because of how big it was. <laughs> See that? There you go, right? How to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought, hey, I could do this, right? I'm like, you know, don't really feel super full with the Holy Spirit. This one looks easy. I'll do this. Here's the crazy thing about it. Like 80% of the book is him saying, are you sure you want to be filled? Are you sure you want the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you sure you want to experience this? And I'm like, dude, there's not a lot of room left in this book. You got to get to the point. You got to get to it. And the point of it is this. He says, you probably don't want it that much, as much as you think. Because the truth is, here's the way the Spirit works. The Spirit, He, the Spirit, is an all-consuming fire that can fill you and overwhelm you and empower you in incredible, absolutely magnificent ways. The only thing that is limiting you living in the Spirit is you allowing yourself to be open to the Spirit. And the only thing keeping you from that is that your mind is fixed on the things of this world. You cannot... Fix your mind on the comforts and the things of this life and of this world. You cannot make working all that stuff out your top priority and still have room to pursue life in the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. We want it to so badly. We want there to be compartments. But the truth is, if you are sitting here today and you're honest enough with yourself and you can say, I'm pretty comfortable right now. Like things are pretty good right now then I would say to you, it's not the place to be. 
The question is, am I comfortable right now? Because that's what's most important to me. Now, I don't mean to be callous here, because I know that there are many here who don't feel comfortable, who are like, my life's a mess, things are falling apart, this has been a crazy couple of years. But the truth is, how much of the despair that we feel is trying desperately to just get everything back to where we're comfortable? How much effort do we exert on just being comfortable? How much do we care about it? The Holy Spirit isn't some extra bonus thing. Have you ever been in a place in life where you're preoccupied with something and you miss out on other things? What Paul is saying to the church is he's saying the good news is the benefit of the gospel is that you have the ability to walk not according to the flesh anymore but according to the spirit. But you have to deny the flesh. You have to say, I will not be about that. I will be about this. You can't have both. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We want to believe these things can work together. We want to believe that they'll coexist and they'll get along just fine. But the truth, according to Paul, is please do not make that mistake because you will sacrifice one for the other. These things are mutually exclusive. What you do is you cut one out of your life to make room for the other. You either cut sin out of your life, and, and the way that you uh, mortify something, the way that you kill something comprehensively, is there's two steps. The first one is you cut it out as much as you possibly can. You want to leave none left so that it can grow back. The other is you then have to create an environment that is in no way hospitable to that thing growing back. That's how you do it. That's how you thoroughly get rid of something. And what Paul is saying is he's saying is if your mind is set on the flesh, and by flesh, I mean the physical world. If your mind is set on that thing, then you're not going to leave room for a mind that is set on the Spirit. The way Paul describes it, it's almost as though someone, it's like the story of the Pied Piper, you know, walking along with his pipe, these rats following him. They're pretty happy. They're pretty content. They're doing pretty well. They're more than happy to keep going. And then boom, right into the sea. Saying this is how it will be for so many. How much of our exhaustion, how much of our frustration, how much of our despair, how much of our hopelessness is with the fact that we are trying desperately to pursue something that makes it not possible for us to pursue the other, the things of God. If you have been at a place in life where you are anything but comfortable, you have probably experienced as a Christian that that is the environment in which God grows you the most. Why? Because of exactly what Paul is saying. It forces us to remove our minds from the flesh. We go, I don't even know if I can make this work anymore. I don't even know what I'm building here. I don't even know what I'm doing here with this thing. And it is in those moments that God goes, yeah, there's this other thing, the Spirit. Let go of that. Grab onto this. And you will walk and live and be different. Paul goes on and he says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Paul is encouraging us with the work of Jesus reminding us of the hope that there is 
in the Spirit. The thing that Jesus seemed to do so much was when people were following him, he didn't make it easy to follow him. It's like, Jesus, you could have made that easier. But so often he would turn to people and he would challenge them and he would question them and he would ask them, is this something that you really want? Knowing how different it was to pursue life in the spirit and life in the flesh. At the end of John, we read this, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? When Jesus had taught them things and told them things that made them realize there is no two ways about it, if you are going to follow me, you will have to let go of the flesh. You will have to let go of the comfort. You will have to let go of what you're building here. You will have to let it go. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To have an encounter with Christ is to have an encounter with one who says, I want you to trust me because I have the key to eternal life and I have the truth. And you see that in what I say. You see that in what I've done. You experience that in what's already happened in your life up till this point. And so I am asking you to trust me enough to let go and to keep following me. The biggest thing keeping us from living in the Spirit is our fixation with the things of this world. Imagine if the church were a place of people who embraced being uncomfortable. I know, it'd be kind of awkward, so we're not talking about it like that. Imagine if the church were a place filled with a people who had decided when they woke up in the morning that the life they were going to build, that the comfort that they really wanted to obtain and honestly thought they kind of deserved was something they were going to let go of. What would happen if the church was filled with people who said, my life is characterized by gratefulness to what Jesus has done, rather than entitlements, rather than being a person who goes around my life going, I deserve, I deserve, I shouldn't have to. It's not fair that. I want, I need, I should get. Or maybe just say, my kids deserve, my kids deserve, whatever. There's a person that walks around saying, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what Christ has done for me. I'm grateful for the fact that I now can live in the Spirit. I was talking with a, a, a member of our church this week. She was in the hospital. She's um, having some heart issues, and we were talking about it. And I was kind of asking her, you know, how, how are things going, and are you going to be... Um, you know, how are you feeling? And she was kind of talking about the tests and the doctors. And she said, you know, they're hoping to try to figure everything out and try to kind of get me better. And then she was like, but you know, I'm 81. So like, how much better is it going to get? And one of the things I like about talking to older people is there is this like, how you doing? Pretty good for an old guy. That's what you get, right? And I'm doing okay, right? There's something about being at a point in life where you know you will not, no matter how you adjust your seat, no matter how you get your bed, no matter what you do, you will not get comfortable, right? And then you just have to live that way all the time. And I think there's something about that. Also, towards the end of our lives, we often are being forced to let go of the things that we thought were so important. The obsession that we had with being comfortable, the obsession that we had with everything working out well for us in the life that we're building, going, what really actually matters to me? What really actually matters in what I'm doing and how I'm living? You'll never be comfortable. You really won't. I won't. You won't. And we can spend our whole lives trying to be. Or we can simply say, I want to fix my mind on the Spirit, and I want to experience life walking in that spirit. As we continue this morning in worship, as we continue to sing, 
I want to encourage you to do something that is, huh, here we go, uncomfortable. I want you to respond. And I don't mean uncomfortable in front of everyone else. I mean internally for you, I'm even uncomfortable. I want you here as we continue to worship and gather together this morning, whatever you need to do to respond and to say to God, God, I am not going to be comfortable. Instead, I'm going to fix my mind on your spirit, and I'm going to choose that. For some, that literally means getting up, walking up to the front, kneeling down, and praying as you worship because that is an uncomfortable thing to do. And because if you don't do something physical, you aren't really sure about what it is that you were doing. For some of you that is sitting in a chair with your eyes closed, looking down at the ground, talking to God. For some of us, it's raising our hands as we worship. I'm not asking you to do something just because it makes you uncomfortable. I'm asking you to respond. I'm asking you to talk to God. I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you, I'm pleading with you to let go of the flesh. It is not an easy thing to do, but it is a liberating thing to do because it is by fixing our minds on the spirits that we can walk according to the spirit and what that brings us is life. Let's pray. God, I keep going back to that question in my mind again and again and again. Do you really want this? Do you want this? Do you really want this? Or is your life fine? Are you fine? Are things fine? Are you, are you, are you comfortable where you are with what you're doing? Are you comfortable with the track that your life is set on? Or do you really want to experience a life in the Spirit, as Paul talks about. God, I confess that most of my frustration and my angst is with the fact that I'm trying to make both of these lives work and it's not working out. Most of my resentment and frustration towards you is the fact that you won't give me both, and I think I deserve both. You don't promise us both. God, you promise us a life in your Spirit. You promise a life in your Spirit that produces such tremendous fruit such hope and peace and joy that we are truly alive, even if our lives look totally different from those who are obsessed with the comfortable God. Would you give us the courage to just be able to let go of that? Would you give us the courage to be able to say, I'm going to be someone who lives my life differently, to let go? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.